So to ask the question, are humans special? I cue it up at the beginning of the book with this quote from Hamlet, the famous soliloquy, what a piece of work is a man, in which he does exactly that. It's wonderful. And yet, and the line that comes after that is the Paragon of Animals line is, is uh, but what is this quintessence of dust? We are merely matter. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Adam Rutherford, science writer and broadcaster. He studied genetics at University College London, and during his PhD on the developing eye, he was part of a team that identified the first known genetic cause of a form of childhood blindness. He writes and presents BBC flagship weekly Radio 4 program Inside Science, The Cell for BBC4, and Playing God on the Rise of Synthetic Biology for the leading science series Horizon. He writes for The Guardian, and his previous books are A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived and Creation. He's here today to talk about his latest book, Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature. And for those listening later on, we do talk about and acknowledge sex as a thing that exists that animals and humans engage in. So if you've got young ears listening, you may want to skip this one and come back to it later. Now, Darwin then explores exactly that same idea. He talks about us. This is, this is in, um, The Descent of Man, um, his second best book and talks about exactly the same thing, places us very much on the evolutionary tree of life, which means that we are animals. And yet we are these very special animals that have all of these capabilities that no other animals do. So the question then becomes, well, so what a, is that distinction valid? Oh, are we special? Um, B, are those things that we think as being uniquely human, well, are they? Darwin uses this phrase that we differ by degree and not kind, which is uh, a very elegant, typically beautifully Darwinian phrase. So that that's a question that I'm exploring in the book as well. Uh, and also just this notion that people have been writing books about what makes us human for years, for decades. And it's been a question that's preoccupied philosophers and scientists for hundreds or thousands of of years and uh, and i think so many of those answers fall into sort of uniqueness categories so uniqueness theories that it was this thing and in the last few years you know we've had like our ability to control fire that was what made us human uh, meat eating that's what made us human people have suggested slightly outlandish things like taking hallucinogenic drugs as a thing that made us human more sensibly it's language or um you know or whatever and i i feel like n- none of these singular ideas I- explain the totality of what it is to be or to be human or why why we have become human um, and I think uniqueness theories always fall down on, in, in that regard. So, uh, like I said, uh, asking the question, giving as many answers as possible, but not a definitive one. The really boring answer, what makes us humans, is, is having two human parents and having a human genome. But that doesn't really go any way to uh, sort of understand the human condition. And so, you know, that was one of the challenges of, of exploring this topic. How do, how do we 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 embrace the conundrum that we are animals on a continuous uh, spectrum of of um of human evolution on the on the evolutionary tree but we do all these these weird things as well so that's what it's about no lots of questions lots of answers but no definitive one so why did you want to write this book um for you what was the kind of original hook 
Uh, I guess it was, it's almost like a direct sequel to the previous book, The uh, Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. Because in that, I was using genetics as a sort of new historical source. Uh, so our ability to understand DNA is, is at a sort of all time high and is only getting more sophisticated, plus the newfound ability to extract DNA from bones, from fossils of people who've been dead for thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years meant that we've got this new framework in which we can piece human history and, and prehistory. And so that was a sort of retelling of human history over sort of half a million years or so. And when I was getting to the end of that book, um, I was th- thinking about the transition from how we went from being a uh, the, the the biological entities that we are today, which actually hasn't really fundamentally changed in terms of our anatomy nor our genetics in a quarter of a million years. So now we think the oldest Homo sapiens are from Morocco, in, in northern Africa. And they date to around 300,000 years old. And then we've got lots of specimens from the Rift Valley in the east of Africa, which are more like 200,000 years old and less. And, and we've got a good understanding of the migration of, of people um, around the world from the, the nursery of Homo sapiens, which is, which is Africa. But then you have this, this massive transition that occurs within the last 100,000 years um, and more specifically, within the last 50,000 years, where even though our, our, our bodies and our genes haven't significantly changed, something huge did happen. And that's, people have called this the cognitive revolution. I, 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 I dislike that because revolutions, I think, should, be, should take place over shorter time periods than 10 or 20,000 years. But it's the emergence of what we might call behavioral modernity. So recognizing that, that, there, that at some point in the past, minds like our own started to uh, appear and then became a permanent feature of, of human biology. But the question really is, well, what, what, what changed? Because our bodies were the same for a quarter of a million years um, and our genes were in place for the same amount of time. So why was it only 50,000 years ago or so that we actually became the people that we recognize today? And so that, you know, that's a, that's a big outstanding question in, in human evolution. So when we think about humans as being special and uh, leaving for a second the precise definition of how we're special aside, if we just take that as we are special in some way, at what point did humans or ancestors kind of cross over into the special box or start to display what we think of as the modern criteria that we mark out as being particularly human? I mean, how long have we been, quote unquote, special for? <laughs> well, again, difficult to sort of pinprick specific times, but what we do see is that by 40,000 years ago, we seem to see many things which are associated with modern human behavior. And that includes like sophisticated tool use, uh, it includes abstract art, um, figurative art, so, um, you, you know, representations of hunts and th- things that are important to our local environments, but also things which are not obviously, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, that are more abstract. 
um, musical instruments, things like that, um, social structures, which are more complex than, than previously experienced. Now, th- th- what, what we know from the archaeological records and also from, from um, sort of modeling of these types of people is that all of these types of things, we see flashes of them in the last 100,000 years, but they don't appear to be continuous in the archaeological record. Um, by 40,000 years ago, we see many more of them. And by 30,000 years ago, they appear to be permanent and global. And so, and, and global as well, to an extent that they can't have had um, uh, single points of origin. So the days keep changing because we keep looking and we keep finding more stuff. So, for example, you know, in Europe by 35,000 years ago, we've got figurative art. We've got the amazing Lion Man, the Löwenmensch of Holenstein Stadel, which is this 12-inch carved figure of a man with a lion's head uh, with these sort of striped tattoos down one arm. And, And this is, you know, this says a lot about people at this stage. It shows us the ability to, the, the ability to, imagine a being is there it shows us the significance the sort of totemic significance of cave lions at that time um, it shows an immense amount of skill and of course that object wouldn't have existed in isolation it would have been part of a of a tradition or a linear skill um, set uh, and uh, and that's uh, that dates to around 40,000 years ago in south um Germany. So that's a very European thing. We see lots of European cave art after, after that time. Just last year, um, cave paintings in a cave in Borneo were identified, which appear to be fractionally older. So the, the, the lowest possible date for these, these paintings, which are of a, a Bantang, which is a type of uh, in a local cow, appear to be a minimum of 40,000 years ago. So that pushes the dates well, the date's roughly the same, maybe a bit older, but it pushes the location right to the other side of the world. So this isn't a thing which is Eurocentric, which it was, uh, you know, behavioral modernity was thought to be very Eurocentric until relatively recently. So we're now seeing all of these sort of cu- cultural artifacts and, and pieces of archaeological evidence, which suggest that the, the minds of the people who made those objects or made those those depictions were not dissimilar from hours today so so the question is well what is you know what what happened why is why is this significant at this point in time what happened 50 or 40,000 years ago which meant that all of a sudden people all over the world were suddenly being much more like us than our ancestors who were arguably less sophisticated in their culture than 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 we are so now that we're on the, the topic of culture, because a lot of the things we point to as being kind of quintessentially human in a more modern sense really come down not necessarily to what we think of immediately as biological, but more as uh, cultural things, our use of tools and technology, our use of language, um, art, uh, some of the other things that you, you called out. Um, and your book is definitely preoccupied and and takes special effort to consider the relationship between our biology and its evolution and our culture and its evolution. It doesn't, you don't, you don't look at those things as being entirely separate. For you, they seem very interrelated and intermingled and important to consider together. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so we, we talk about gene culture coevolution for humans, which is rather than talking about natural selection for humans, it is the, 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 the fact that we have offloaded so much of our behavior and biology onto culture, an analogy which I, I didn't um, 
and in events, but it's quite a neat one, is if we think about a computer as having hardware and software, and you can make that comparison with biology that, that, that our physical bodies and our genetics, that's the hardware, and our software is the culture. Um, now, both of those two things are absolutely intertwined. You can't, you can't do you, you can't enact cultural things without having a biological framework which enables them to be um, to, to be what they are uh, but the I think the analogy is important here for humans because what it what we have done more than any other creature is we have moved the importance of the hardware we've lowered the importance of the hardware and inc- massively increased the power of the software so our culture um, particularly our social culture the way we interact with each other is hugely more important than it has been than it is for any other creature so in a sense that is a that is a, a special thing that is a thing which demarcates a difference between us and and them but it is in, it in, in some ways you know I, I try to address some of the sort of pitfalls of um talking about human evolution and evolution in general um which are which include the fact that we we sort of try to talk about these things separately when they're intertwined you know you can't have the ability to carve the lion man of Hollenstein stadel if you don't have the uh the the dexterity in your hands to do that which is you know a very evolved physical characteristic and the motor power in your brain to direct those hands but also the the you know frontal cortex imagination and planning and all of those sorts of biological um bases in order for that whole thing to you know for you to have the desire and the skills to produce that that piece of that piece of culture so to my mind it's it, it's difficult to separate those things and we do need to address them you know all all together um, speech is a good example of this. I mean, what we're doing now is in, is ridiculously complicated and requires huge amounts of brain power. Some of the most complex musculature that that exists in in the human body, um, in in that in, in the bones associated with the hyoid and our throats and our tongues, um, and our mouths and our lips, and the amount of sort of physical uh, energy and investment and us being able to do what we do so casualty that is a highly highly evolved process and so when people i began to identify genes associated with human speech capabilities there is a there was a tendency or a trap that that was frequently and continues to be frequently sprung which is that there's this one gene which is fundamentally different in us than it is for chimpanzees called FOXP2. And when it's disrupted uh, in patients, they have lots of speech dyspraxias and um, speech disorders. And so the temptation is to go, ha we found the gene for human speech. And that's the thing that's, um, that makes us different from, uh, from, from chimps or earlier hominins or every other organism. Now, the truth is that there are no genes for speech. It's just like I've said, there's so much going on biologically and genetically and, and, um, and neurologically in what we're doing so easily right now that it makes no sense to say that there is a single trigger for that, for, for, for that process to have evolved. No matter how tempting it is to identify a single trigger, such as this one gene, um, that changed in us at some point. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is about 
a lot of the book is thinking about these these sort of traps. Some of them are called, some of them are referred to as adaptationists. So the tendency, particularly amongst psychologists and evolutionary psychologists, to ascribe a a process of natural selection by an adaptive function to any specific behavior. Mostly these things are untestable. Mostly these things are, are what we refer to as just so stories that, uh, you know, people behave in this way because at some point in our evolutionary his- history on the savannas of Africa and the Pleistocene or whatever, life was like this. And therefore we evolved to be like this. Now, the problem with those sorts of explanations is they're untestable, right? So they're not scientific in, in uh, in setting them up they're very tempting because we like to explain our behaviors um but the truth is that nowadays we can we can see in the genomes the the signature of selection we can see where natural selection has taken place and there are far fewer adaptive functions in humans than a lot of people think much of our biology much of our m- many of the phenotypes th- that we um that we possess much of our behavior is just stuff that happened it wasn't selected positively or negatively it may have drifted into being or it may have been associated in terms of its position in the genome with things that were being selected and therefore have spread through populations through time so these are the types of these are the types of issues which i think a lot of them are in the book and i'm, I'm addressing a lot of them and trying to and critiquing a lot of those, those sorts of ideas um, because, well, I don't think they're right, but they are certainly very popular. I've been finding in a lot of the conversations I've had over the last couple of years and a lot of the science books I've read that a kind of common theme that seems to be emerging and that people are grappling with in all kinds of different areas is that we sort of started in this stage of science where we had uh, where generalists were kind of the order of the day. People were kind of generally into science and knew a lot about a lot of stuff and that was able to get us so far. Then we kind of shifted into this era where we became specialists, highly, highly specialized that allowed us to dig further into a lot of things like uh, genetics and chemistry and um, a lot of the computing, that kind of stuff. And now we're starting to get to a stage where we kind of need the cross-disciplinary value of a generalist again, or of teams working with in different specialties looking at the same problem, because we're finding that that complexity matters, and that quite often that complexity spans across what we what have become specialized disciplines now. So you sort of, in order to really understand or to try and understand the complexity, you don't just need geneticists or evolutionary experts, you also need sociologists and maybe some psychologists, people who are experts in understanding the behavior of people as well as the biology. And and that can become really difficult because we've kind of we've kind of funneled ourselves into these very specific channels of knowledge and now we have to try and span these specializations. I, I couldn't agree more and I think it's so important. We we you know the whole scientific culture if you progress through academia is to become more and more specialized and you know my my phd wasn't really to do with a lot of the things that i'm writing with now other than it was about the genome and about genetics i, I was involved in um thinking about eye development and eye diseases um since then the world just expands and opens up in front of you and so i spend as much time talking to historians and archaeologists as i do talking to other geneticists and 
again, it's that phrase. It's the Darwinian quote, ignorance beget, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than, than does knowledge. We can, in a, in a non-pernicious way, but in a, in a siloed way, we can be very blinkered in our ability to tell specific stories from human evolutionary history based on the what piece of evidence you're actually looking at. And so, you know, genetics is undergoing a perpetual revolution at the moment, and, and the stories are becoming more sophisticated. It was much easier the less we knew. We could say with absolute confidence that people started here and ended up over there. Uh, if we didn't know much genetics, but uh, unfortunately, geneticists keep doing more work and um, keep finding out more stuff. The um, w- one of the examples of of this, uh, which I love, is that when I was growing up, so I'm 44, I think. Yes, uh, when I was growing up, and and I was I was always really into into biology and evolution. Those pictures, those evolutionary trees, which had the skulls on them, which led to us, and that. That famous image, which is from a 1960s uh, French textbook, which is called The March of Progress, which has a sort of monkey-like thing on the left-hand side and slowly more upright and less hairy monkey-like things until you get to uh, a white man with a beard and a, and a, and a spear. Right? It's an you know, incredibly famous image, an iconic image. Man, do I hate that. I hate it so much. I hate it for two reasons. One is it says that there is direction to our to our evolution, that it is actually progress, which is just not true. We, no matter how you measure progress, evolution it fills niches as the environment requires it. We are no more or less evolved than any creature that exists currently on, on Earth. But the second thing is that it suggests very clearly that we know the gaps, we know that journey. Um, and, and maybe in the 1960s, we did because we had so so such a paucity of data you know, only a few skulls, only a few bones, and certainly no genetics whatsoever. Since then, we found millions of more fossils and archaeological um, evidence. And then in the last 10, 15 years, we've now got genetic evidence, both from prehistory and con- and living um, contemporary populations. And we can't draw that picture at all anymore. I, and I, I say this in lectures to students and to, and to the public, and they look a bit... Well, sometimes they look a bit annoyed because <laughs> you're kind of telling them, uh, you know, we we used to know exactly what is what, and then we kept looking, and now we don't know what is what. Uh, now I think that's something that we should embrace because we'll get there in, in, with an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of resources. Actually, do you know what we won't because so much of history and uh, biological history is is simply lost; it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so we'll always be p- piecing you know, miss, missing pieces and, and having the best fit um, to how we got here, how we how we are the way we are. But that's a good thing. That's how it should be. And so, yes, we need to be talking to all of those other disciplines. We need the, the, the expertise of archaeologists who've been doing this a lot longer than geneticists have, which doesn't mean they're any writer, but there's a long tradition which is much lo- longer than the study of DNA and historians. I spend a lot of time talking his- to historians because retelling stories from, particularly from indigenous people around the world that we're now talking about how the various uh, indigenous peoples populated, you know, huge areas of the globe. Um, it, genetics tells a big part of that story in a way that has never been addressed before, but historians know these stories already. 
or, and have their own interpretations of different forms of evidence. And sometimes, I, sometimes my people can be a bit arrogant about the power of genetics that it's, because it's a more sort of harder science than, than history, that the evidence is better. I, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I, I think it's really important that geneticists who are the new kids on the block here need to show a lot of humility in uh, recognizing that um, a lot of people, a lot of good scholars have spent a lot longer thinking about these questions than we have. While we were looking around um, with test tubes and DNA, they were doing history. And it's only now that we're doing history. And that's just, that's sort of by accident. I think as well, there's this tendency for all people, whether they're involved in science or uh, historians or just sort of lay people thinking about evolution, we have this tendency to kind of look at evolution as an artifact of the past. It's something that has happened and forget that it is something that is still happening and has continued to happen. We think of how chimps or bonobos are related to us and then we tend to sort of jump to we evolved from chimpanzees, right? We evolved from apes. But those those creatures that still exist, bonobos and gorillas and chimps, have continued to evolve past the point of that split. They didn't kind of split and then stop and humans kept going. There, There is this kind of mental framework, I think, that people have that ignores the fact that everything continues to evolve and has evolved at the same time that humans evolved. And that sometimes, I think maybe because it because it breaks the specialness in our heads that we feel like we're kind of the pinnacle and have left everything behind and sidestep the fact that everything has also continued to evolve along with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I make this point quite firmly, particularly in the in the chapter about violence and, and war. Bonobos and chimpanzees are a really great example because they we are equally related to chimpanzees and, and bonobos. And as you say, we're not descended from, um, from either. Uh, we have recent common ancestors. Uh, we have a recent common ancestor probably seven or eight million years ago. But what's really interesting is that th- those two, those two uh, animals have quite different cultures, quite different societal setups. So um, chimpanzees are male-dominated and very violent social structures. Bonobos are not they – don't, they don't not have violence, but they are female – uh, they are matriarchies and they have sex like all the time, like 19 times a day, conflict resolution, greetings, excitement, actual reproduction. Not, almost all of those activities um, involve sexual in- encounters. So there's been a, a, a lot of description about the difference between those two cultures. And, and it's sort of inherently politicized. You get people suggesting that humans are violent because of chimpanzees, because chimpanzees are violent. Uh, and you get other people on a different political spectrum suggesting that humans are more like bonobos. If we were only more like bonobos, everything would be peaceful. And, um, and there would be no more wars. I, obviously, I'm exaggerating for for effect here, but both of those statements miss the point that you just made in the in the question, which is 
we have a common ancestor with chimpanzees and bonobos. We don't know what their behavior was like. We don't know whether the behavior of chimps or bonobos was ancestral, or if the, if there was a dis, an ancestral behavior which we could pinpoint from which e- each of those behaviors in, in chimpanzees, us, and bonobos is a sort of you know a, a, a deviation. We just don't know those things, but it is easy to talk about them in those terms. Um, make love, not war is a phrase that uh, is very popular and has been used to describe the difference between chimp and bonobo populations. But, you know, bonobos are weird. They're, they're a, they are very interesting, but they're a weird sort of they're, – they're not actually on an island, but they are effectively an island population separated from chimpanzees from, – from, from a common ancestor with chimpanzees about uh, two million years ago. And with with no contact ever since, so they've evolved in a very peculiar way, and they've got this this very unusual societal structure. Again, that doesn't mean we're like them or not like them. It may be that some of our behavioural characteristics do have evolutionary um, antecedents with both chimps and and bonobos, but we don't actually know that. And as you say, the key thing is that if there was an ancestral behaviour which we see that was shared by all three or was shared by two out of the three and one is now different, it completely ignores the fact that in the eight million years since that separation that we have evolved from being a, a chimp, a more chimp-like thing into being what we are today, the chimps and the bonobos already, they did that too. They went on that same journey uh, and it, it's kind of it's strange to think that only we have changed in that period of time as you say that's that is that's a really key example of human exceptionalism which i think is folly uh, only we are special out of those three organisms and the other two are representative of an earlier ancestral form that we have deviated away from that we have evolved from although we may carry some of those characteristics that, i mean that's just that's just bad history bad science that's politicizing and speculation and well people do it all the time they they very very popular writers and public intellectuals say these kinds of things on enormous platforms and they say them loudly and they get repeated and i they people tell me this kind of stuff all the time on twitter (laughs) oh twitter (laughs) i know i wish i could leave it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) lasai yeah Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. (laughs) 
In your book, you take some additional time to call out tool use and sex in particular, kind of in uh, an almost extended set of use cases or of mm-hmm. example cases um, to talk about the way humans use tools or the way humans have sex versus the way we see tools being used in the rest of the animal kingdom or with uh, sex, the way we see sort of similar ways or potentially similar ways of other types of creatures having uh, sex in ways that are similar to humans. So why did you, why did you call out these two as kind of uh, needing special focus or wanting to highlight special focus in the book? Well, yeah, two different reasons for both of them. The first is that uh, for tools, that is something that Darwin identified as being unique to humans. And we are we are obligate tool users. We talk a lot about our historical development, uh, evolutionary development of stone tools and the various different cultures, the older one chopper being the first, who's stable for a million years, and then another million years of the Acheulean tool set. But, you know, look, we, we're, we're talking to each other uh, over Skype on a computer. These are all tools. These are all ridiculously sophisticated extensions of our own physical abilities. Darwin suggested that fire tools and language were things which were unique to us. So I thought it was worth addressing um, whether or not that was true, that phrase that he uses, we differ by degree and not kind. I'll come back to that. Sex was a different reason. I mean, evolutionary biologists love talking about sex because it's fun and funny, often very funny. And as I discovered writing the book, frequently pretty grim. But there was a sort of statistical reason why I chose sex, chose to focus on sex, which is that, well, if you ask any high school student, what is the purpose of sex? They will correctly say it is for reproduction, right? That's that's Mm non-controversial. Uh, when when you start crunching the numbers on um, how much sex results in pregnancies in humans, they're 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 well they're stunning. Um, so we did this. I worked with a statistician called David Spiegelholter at Cambridge um, to try and assess the number of sexual encounters that could result in a pregnancy that actually did. Right, and it basically it works out. Spoiler alert: as uh, 0.1%. So one out of every thousand sexual account encounters that could result in a pregnancy actually does, which is, you know, statistically not significant. That is, that is not a, that doesn't, that doesn't chart on the graph. Um, so if you, if you then include all of the sexual behaviors that humans enjoy that cannot result in a pregnancy, use your imagination then the the purpose of sex the answer to that question well what is the function of sex reproduction well that isn't that isn't true uh because the 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 volume of sex that we have hugely dwarfs um the 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 amount of times that that women actually get pregnant so you ask a different question well is that it? Is that the thing? Have we dis- disconnected, decoupled sex from reproduction? And that is a thing which has made us quintessentially human. So the question then becomes, and this is how I address it in the book, well, um, are there any other, are we unique in that regard? Are there any other animals that, uh, that engage in non-reproductive sex? And as becomes, <laughs> as becomes a theme in the book, the answer is, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Very much, yes. Um, so, should I go back and talk about tools, or you want to talk about sex? I would uh, just a couple of follow-ups on tools first. Um, yeah, I, as I was reading the book, I was thinking: is one of the questions that came to mind quite frequently was: is a tool in the context that you're talking about them the same as technology? Are those terms effectively interchangeable? Kind of, almost. Um, so we we talk about technology as technology, culture, and tools. Those are things that are largely, you know, they 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 overlap a lot. So you know, a a stone, an older one, stone chipper. That is a piece of technology. It is also a tool, and it is also part of um, uh, of human culture. So it is, I mean, there are multiple definitions of, of tools. I am very opposed to almost all definitions in science because they, they, they have, I, to my mind, they mostly have the effect of restricting what you can or can't say and what experiments you need to be doing. Mostly taxonomy like that it doesn't reflect what things what, what it reflects what things are rather than a sort of platonic version of what things are rather than what they do so in in that sense i, I do use a definition of tools a sort of standard definition of scientific de- definition of tools which is to do with it being a, an external possibly crafted probably crafted um uh, part, part of the environment which extends the limitations of one's physical body right yeah is that okay? Yeah, no, that makes sense. It just was one of these things that kept occurring to me as we think about the idea of tools, because I think a lot of people would say that technology, our use of technology, um, splits us off from uh, other animals and other creatures on the planet. But uh, for me, it was like, well, what is the, the is this, it feels like there's just like a, like you say, an in number difference, or rather than in kind, uh, between tool and technology, they feel like they're probably on at least the same spectrum. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's partly to do with a contemporary vernacular about those words. So, you know, in scientific papers, we talk about technology being anything which is tool-like and anything cultural. Whereas when we talk about technology in the, in the um, especially in the contemporary age, we, we, we tend to be talking about digital technology or computers, um, which of course are just tools, uh, but they're just ridiculously sophisticated tools, a little bit more complex than um than an Acheulean hand axe. So in a sense, I'm sort of blurring the lines between how how scientists might write these definitions in papers or use these words in papers compared to how we might use them if we were having a drink in the pub. I do want to talk a little bit about sex because obviously sex is interesting. (laughs) Well, not that everything else isn't, but a lot of people like to hear about some of the, some of the weird intricacies of not just how human sex culture is, but also every time I read a book that talks in any way about animal or other types of sex and reproduction that happen on the planet, there's always something in there that I'm like, really? Really? And this time, this time, by the way, we don't need to get into it in detail, but it was the mushroom sex. Didn't know that. I found that fascinating. (laughs) I went and spent a whole couple of hours just thinking about mushroom sex. So for anybody out there, learn about mushroom sex. It's really interesting. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, if, if you're if you're that slow growing, um, then it, it pays to have lots of different ways to have sex because you only come across <laughs> uh, you only come across a potential partner quite infrequently. 
So it's, and we don't really know why how, how it works as well. I mean, it is fascinating that they have literally thousands of different sexes. It's it's so fascinating. I I literally spent a couple of hours down a, a rabbit hole, which was most enjoyable and most interesting. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the ideas between uh, how people engage in sex and what we quote unquote use sex for. Um, if it's not for reproduction, which you which you mentioned, statistically reproduction seems to be statistically insignificant. Yeah. Uh, so we have to think about the the ways we use sex. Um, um, and what it what good it does for us, but also thinking about how sex uh, is used in different ways across the wider animal kingdom as well. Um, and in particular, uh, I think the idea of sex and violence is something um, that kind of stuck with me in this book um, because we do tend to project some of the problematic aspects of human sexuality in our culture onto animals with particular words that while have very important meanings in human culture, um, are, are, we should, we shouldn't really use them with the same kind of certainty when we're talking about other creatures. Um, in particular, when we're thinking about ideas like prostitution, um, ideas like rape, and to some extent, even the idea of consent, those are very much human constructs and have legal definitions in human culture, not, not strictly speaking, scientific definitions. And so using these terms when we talk about animals, uh, is is I think fraught. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I, there there is a lot of violence in nature, and it's um I, the the book doesn't shy away from from pointing out that much of nature is uh, is really horrific, um, and lots of behaviour of animals that we think of as being really cute, such as dolphins and sea otters, is actually you know really shocking and so the fact that there is um that the, the conflict is inherent to evolution now well, that's non-controversial and and the fact that in sexual reproduction is effectively um, a manifestation of 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 conflict in in many ways because females and males have different reproductive strategies males compete with other males to get access to females who then subsequently choose who they wish to be mated by and with now those are the sort of standards of of uh, sexual selection which which we've got a pretty good grasp on um the i i guess one of the things that i'm i'm highlighting in the book is that i'm in the in the sections where i'm talking about sex it's very tempting to look at our own sexual behaviors uh most of which are positive, but some of which are involve violence and and um, illegal activities. Um, to to look at what we do and compare it to examples that we see, which look familiar in in the natural world. And again, it's making that potential mistake of saying, "Well, we do this because animals do this," when in fact we, for the most part, we either don't know or that is untrue. Now, there are many examples that we we sort of know why animals are doing what looks like non-reproductive sexual behaviors. Um, uh, so, for example, there are many examples of oral sex or fellatio. Uh, can I talk about that? Okay, I mean, is it, are we okay to... Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. 
there are many examples of oral sex or particularly fellatio that have been observed in the animal kingdom. Uh, and, and some of them have very sensible evolutionary explanations for why they exist. So I, this is when it gets both scientifically interesting and quite amusing to me because I'm quite childish. Um, that, so there's a, there's a, a fruit bat where the females engage in fellatio during penetrative sex which is a nice trick if you can do it. Um, <laughs> the reason we think they do this is because it, it appears to have the slightly counterintuitive effect of prolonging sex. So the males take longer to ejaculate if the females are licking the shaft of the male's penis during penetrative sex. And the longer the, 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 the copulation, the, 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 if, if copulation takes a, uh, a longer amount of time, then the female is effectively mate guarding. So she is protecting um, who she's being mated by. There's um, e another example is in masturbation. So there's lots of masturbation in, in the animal world. Uh, the Cape ground squirrel, which is very promiscuous and has lots of sexually transmitted diseases in its populations. Um, the males of the Cape ground squirrel uh, species, they have sex with females and then afterwards they masturbate uh which again nice trick if you can do it but they appear to be doing it in order to f attempt to flush out any sexually transmitted diseases that they might might have acquired through having lots of sex with lots of, of of females so those are examples of evolutionary strategies that work very well with our current understanding of how evolution works and then there's a ton there's tons of stuff that we just don't you know we see these behaviors and and have no real recognition of why what the what a scientific explanation of what that behavior might be the best and most striking example is in giraffes so just a brief life history of giraffes to, to get into the story. Giraffes are almost always are sexually segregated in herds. So you have male herds and you have female herds, and they only tend to meet up when 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 the females are on estrus and the males are attempting to mate with them, which is like a few days per per year. Female giraffes take a long time to gestate. I, from memory, I think it's 24 months, but do check that. Um, now, you might have seen on nature documentaries, on brilliant David Attenborough documentaries, that the males, they do this this amazing display where they wrestle with each other. It's called necking. And they sort of, it's, it's like sort of stags rutting, but they wrap their necks around each other and they splay their legs and they wrestle and they wrestle until one of them wins. What they don't show you on the nature documentaries is that in a, a significant proportion of, of those necking encounters, one or both of the males have an unsheathed and erect penis and the winner will penetrate the loser. So these are both males. So this is anal penetration. Now, when this was accounted for, this has been known about, by the way, since classical times, um, in terms of the, the behavior of male, male, male penetrative giraffe sexual behavior. But when the, when in the eighties and nineties, this was a, accounted for with over 3000 hours of, of observation at three different locations in, uh, in Africa, the numbers came out like this. 94% of sexual encounters in giraffes are male to male and penetrative and ejaculatory as far as we can tell based on their bodily movements. Now that is, that is a lot of homosexual behavior. It's not exclusive because exclusive homosexuality is an evolutionary dead end. Um, but they, during the same time period, females carved, I, th I think it was 
uh, some, something like 20, I forget the exact number, but something like 20 calves, which is a perfectly healthy brood during that time. And so there's no suggestion that these giraffes are, are uh, um, on their way to extinction as a result of lack of heterosexual activity. But the bottom line is we, we don't know why male giraffes, why the majority of sexual behavior in giraffes is, is apparently homosexual. We, we, there isn't an evolutionary scientific explanation as to why they do that. Now, that's a good problem. That's a good scientific problem to try and understand. Um, we're not very good at suggesting that animals do have behaviors which are involved in pleasure. And I think there's good historical reasons for that, which are that we try not to anthropomorphize animal behavior. We try to say, this is, you know, to say, we, if I ask you whether you enjoy something, you can tell me yes or no. And if I ask someone else, if they enjoy that thing and they say the same answer, I have a data set where two people have said they enjoy the same thing. I could take that on face value and say that you're not lying to me. But nowadays, we can do brain scans and we can associate pleasure responses with your whatever activity we're talking about and so on. And so we have, we've got a good system for working out whether humans like doing a thing. We cannot do that with animals. And so we're very reluctant scientifically to say this animal is doing this because it likes it um uh, and, and so the pleasure principle becomes is a bit of a moot topic in animal uh, behavior and e ethology um and it, well i'm not suggesting that, it, that that is the reason for the giraffes having so much um male-to-male -male sex but it, it might be the case if you've got a dog or a cat, it seems pretty obvious that when you stroke them, they are enjoying themselves or a dog enjoys fetching a ball. Uh, that, that seems non-controversial. Um, but in general, we're really not great at saying, yeah, maybe they're just doing it because they like it. It seems like this is uh, something because it's so difficult to test the existence of of pleasure in animals that aren't human because we obviously can't ask them. Um, that it seems like the the way we approach it is we must eliminate all other possibilities first. When we've eliminated eliminated all the other possibilities, and we're like, well, maybe pleasure, <laughs> kind of cautiously. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I think I think that's right. I mean, another example which I included because it, again, it kind of made me laugh. But it is a good example of how reluctant we are to address pleasure in in non-human animals. So, and and I need to frame this correctly. These are two bears in a Croatian zoo. Now, zoos are extremely weird environments, uh, and a lot of the behaviour we see in zoos is not normal. Right, just because of what zoos are, um, but there are these two bears in Zagreb, and this is from an academic paper. Uh, it's all the book is fully referenced. There are two male bears who are rescued as cubs, and um, every morning one of the bears approaches the other bear and parts his legs and performs an act of fellatio, which lasts about four minutes, um, whilst humming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's just a detail which is it's in the paper. It's worth mentioning. They're humming. Um, and 
so this is a write-up in an academic paper now you know that's that's a cool story and it's fun and it's interesting and it's interesting scientifically and so there's there's no suggestion in the write-up that that maybe they do this because they like doing it there are lots of other explanations offered such as that they were taken away from their mother when they were young so suckling behavior was lost and maybe this is some sort of replacement i i don't know about that i mean that seems like random speculation to me and also weirdly i don't know (laughs) blaming the mother for this behavior as well um who knows maybe they do it because because they like it and then they get on with the rest of their day doing you know bear things (laughs) (laughs) it is one of the more (laughs) interesting examples that you use in the book of just cases where there doesn't seem to be any other explanation and yet we still really kind of leave the idea of sex as pleasure for creatures other than humans at, at arm's length, which I find really fascinating because if you, if you were to say that two men do this every day, two human men do this every day, well, the obvious answer is they do it because they enjoy it. Right, right. And then, you know, you asked me, what is the purpose of sex? Well, I, I don't know what the purpose of sex is, but the, the fundamental, the, the origin and the basic purpose of sex is still that we continue to have children but we we have sex for all sorts of reasons including social bonding and um uh but but fundamentally we have sex because it's it, it's a good thing to do it's a nice thing to do and it feels it feels nice um is that fundamentally different from other animals well we don't know but I I I think I think it would be foolish to rule it out, given the amount of behaviors, sexual behaviors that we see in the animal kingdom that are familiar to us, um, but maybe different. Again, it's that thing. It's complexity. It's, it's I think it's more interesting to look at all these these weirdnesses of nature, which are only weird to us. I mean, yeah, it's to giraffes. That's what giraffes do. Um, but you're right, we can't ask them. But I think that makes the story of evolution much more interesting than the version, uh, than, than the version which gives you nice, clean answers. And, and you know, it's just sex. Uh, animals are doing it. They're doing it all the time. It's a shame that we don't see it on natural history documentaries because it is the driving force of evolution. I think as well, it, things like this make me think about what human behavior might look to a third party, to a kind of impartial, unattached, non-human third party, where there there are for sure just inscrutable pieces of human behavior that obviously there's the ones we kind of probably know about and can talk about, but there's probably ones that we don't even consider as being kind of weird that a third party would look at and be like, why do you do that? That is just <laughs> a weird thing. We can't explain it. And it reminds me that, that it's difficult to really comment as human on ourselves, but also the external environment, because we're always kind of trapped in this context and framework of we are human, and this is what we take as quote unquote normal or understand to be normal behavior or the framework that we we use to kind of understand the world around us. I think that's a good thing to remember occasionally that we are always looking through the lens of being us. Right. And 
it, it is so culturally dependent as well. These things change through time, and we're very, very bad at recognizing historical precedents or the longevity of behaviors. Behaviors such as homosexual behavior is uh, homosexuality is is not consistent through time and is not culturally consistent through time either. So, for hundreds of years, um, I guess up until the current era. Uh, homosexuality is, is described by the Christian church as being contra naturum, so against nature, and and a real taboo. You know, people were executed around the world to this day. People are executed and persecuted for being gay, and it's not exactly, uh, you, you know, fully accepted, but it's a damn sight better than it was 20 years ago or 100 years ago or 500 years ago. But that is inconsistent geographically now and, and geographically and historically where sex with other uh, men or, or or women, if you are a woman, w- was regarded as just a thing that you do, uh, especially during the classical era. And this is consistent all around the world. I think what is different is that we are much more focused on identities now than we have been historically. And so one of the things I say in the book, which is, and, and I derive this from historians, from, particularly from a historian friend of mine called Caroline Dodd-Pennock, who's, who works on the um, uh, America. These are ideas where we say, I identify as a, as a, as a homosexual and that defines my behavior. Whereas historically, it is just a thing that you did Right, having sex with a with uh, a, another man was a thing that you did, rather than it being a thing that you are. So all of these behaviors, these are just examples of, our, of how our cultural behaviors are inconsistent through time, and they do change according to contemporary taboos. And you know, who knows what in two hundred years' time how people will judge us? Can you believe that those guys at the beginning of the twenty first century were still eating meat? or uh, had issues with transgender people or or something that we can't even conceive of right now and that we will be condemned as as being um, awful historical people because of the things that we do today that we don't recognize as being problematic. Do you remember those guys at the beginning of the 21st century who utterly destroyed the planet because they ate so much meat? Weren't they awful? It is true. We, uh, we have a remarkably a remarkable lack in ability to take into account different times, places, and context. Try as we might, but we will continue to try our best to broaden our horizons there. Adam, it's a really interesting book and a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great talking with you. Thanks, Rochelle. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. And if you want to learn more about Adam Rutherford or his book, Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature, as always, we have links for you in the show notes, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, 
or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 